thank you. It's a privilege to speak to my brothers today. And uh, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to talk about servant leadership today. It's something that I really believe in. It's been a core philosophy for me uh, for more than a decade. It's not something that I immediately um, heard about, understood. Um, But once I melded that into my spirit and became a part of the fabric of who I am, um, it has revolutionized my life and it's been a blessing to me. And so we're going to start a lesson today. You have your outlines in front of you. And you can see that we're going to need to uh, open in our Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And we're going to be reading verses 32 through 45. And we're going to talk about um, the secular view of leadership first. And uh, before I read that passage of Scripture, I just want to go on record and say that I have a bit of a concern about the secular mindset and model of leadership getting into the church. We have a lot of Fortune 500 churches and CEO pastors, and we really need a revival of apostolic biblical leadership in the church of the living God. Uh, We have got to go forward, and we have to give ourselves completely to biblical principles when it comes to leadership. There is an influence from the world, and there is a seductive call um, from um, books, corporate books. I'm not against reading them. I think we have to spit out the bones. But I really believe with all of my heart that uh, we need to get back to what the Bible has to say regarding leadership. And um, we need to reject that secular mindset and mentality that's creeping into the church. Um, God wants to anoint his church. God doesn't just want to anoint his church, but he wants to anoint our leaders and our leadership style, and he wants to anoint our administration. We compartmentalize our lives, and we want to be apostolic in our doctrine, but we want to be secular in our leadership style. We want to be, uh, you know, apostolic uh, in our altar calls, but we want to be secular when it comes to our management and administrative processes. The Bible covers all of these things. And we need to open the floodgates of blessing by living in one box and being apostolic, not only in doctrine, but in leadership and in our administrative practices. So let's talk about this. In Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them, tell them what things should happen unto him. So he's with his disciples, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. Stepping out of the text for a moment, just to give some commentary and say that Jesus is being very um, detailed. Um, He's speaking prophetically about what is to come, his crucifixion, um, the the fact that he's to be tortured, he's going to die, and that he's going to rise again on the third day. So he's telling the, uh, the board of directors that the CEO is stepping off the scene. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto Jesus, saying, Master, we would that ye should do for us whatever we shall desire. 
so they're making a request, and uh, it's kind of like the genie in a bottle kind of a request. You know, do for us whatever we desire. Jesus said unto them, what would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. Now, understand, Jesus just told them he's stepping off the scene. The CEO is going to be stepping away from the company, and immediately James and John sign up to co-direct the the, uh, vacated role. Jesus responds in verse 38, But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And they said unto him, we can. How little they knew. (laughs) Reading on, and Jesus said unto them, ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I am baptized with all, shall ye be baptized. Verse 40. So the Lord said, okay, you're going to go through some stuff. That bitter cup that Jesus didn't want to drink from. And said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That bitter cup, the cup of death, he said, you're going to drink from that cup, and you're going to be baptized with the fire of adversity that I have been baptized with. Verse 40, he clarifies, however, but to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. So there, evidently, there are places in God that invitation only verse 41 and when the 10 heard it how many disciples are there there are 12 at this point we have 12 disciples and 10 hear about James and John's power grab and the scripture says they began to be much displeased with James and John you know all of a sudden We've moved from a team mentality, a unity mentality, to a competition mentality. Now we're competing with one another. The dynamic has changed because a spirit has entered into this situation, a spirit that is trying to grab and take leadership. So they're displeased, verse 42, but Jesus called them to him. And saith unto them, Ye know that they which are counted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. I want to just want you to note in verse 42, they which are counted to rule over the Gentiles. So he's talking about the secular style of leadership. He is giving commentary on secular leadership. And he says they exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. He gives two profiles to secular leadership, two trademarks. And then in verse 43, he says, but so shall it not be among you. I don't want you to do this, he's telling them. Now, we're going to unpack and lean into what it really means uh, to be involved with secular leadership based on the Lord's commentary, his two observations. But I just want to be clear in verse 43 that Jesus is making uh, a very powerful statement. He says, so shall it not be among you. He doesn't want us to employ secular style models of leadership. But whosoever, he goes on to say, whosoever will be great among you shall be 
your minister. That's a very important word there. That word minister in the Greek means to be an attendant. When you think of minister, now I know I, nobody on this conference call thinks this way, but a lot of people, when they think of minister or preacher, they think about somebody who, uh, you know, works once a week on Sundays and, uh, you know, sleeps sleeps in every day and, and uh, you know, eats fried chicken. They say that a, a pastor's belt is just a leather fence around a chicken graveyard. But uh, it's not true. We know that. The Lord said, the greatest among you shall be a minister. That's a word that some people are enamored with. But its true meaning is to be an attendant, to be a waiter, a person who actually does many menial tasks. So then verse 44, he says, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. Whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. What a powerful statement. It's a life-altering statement if this becomes part of your ministerial leadership philosophy. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus was making it clear that he did not want his disciples to employ the style of leadership of lording over or exercising authority upon people. At that day and that time, secular styles of leadership came from Rome. Jesus was remarking and commenting on a Roman style of leadership. And I want to break down both of Jesus' observations. First of all, he talked about lording it over them. This is the Roman style of leadership. Now, the disciples knew what it meant to lord it over, to lord over. They, they understood that. They were um, living under Roman rule and government. They're very familiar with that style of leadership. They saw it every day in their rulers. They saw it every day among uh, the Roman military. And the Roman style of leadership lorded over is simply stated, might makes right. Might makes right. There's some preachers that have that mentality, that secular style, that Roman style of leadership, might makes right. If you have the biggest army, you run the show. To lord it over them means to subject people to your power. It implies absolute power over another individual. The follower is not at liberty to ask questions or even make suggestions. You herd people together, you tell them what to do, and if they disagree, you eliminate them. And by the way, this has a very, this has been a very effective style of leadership. Just ask uh, Germany. Talk to Germany about it. Adolf Hitler. This was his style. It's a very effective style of leadership. The problem is, it's only effective for a while. This style of leadership has a very short uh, shelf life to it. Now, I want to remind the brethren today that Jesus was not a cowboy. He was a shepherd. Cowboys drive the herd. Cowboys, um, you know, throw the cow down, throw the steer down, and they rope it. And, and then once they have that thing tied down, what do they do? They put their brand on it. 
It's my cow. It's my steer. Jesus was not a cowboy. The cowboy style of leadership is driving the herd, but a shepherd style of leadership is leading the flock. Understand that. There's a secular mentality out there that says, I'm right because I'm in charge. And might makes me right. But remember that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we need to realize that our role as leaders is an appointed role. It has been given to us and that we are never more than under shepherds from God Almighty. We're dealing with his property. We're dealing with his sheep. So the Romans were masters at lording it over their subjects. You know, people tend to do what they're told uh, when they walk down a road that's lined with their crucified relatives on it. And remember also that Roman soldiers could at any time require a Jew to carry their belongings for one mile. That's why Jesus said, if a soldier asks you to carry his pack for a mile, then walk a second for them. Now, you may be listening to me and thinking, now, come on, that's... That's an extreme slant on lording over. You know, we don't do that. You know, there's there's just really, you're just not going to have a pastor who's just going to be that strong. Well, at the very least then, let's say that lording over could be described as leadership without compassion. Think about that. Leadership without compassion. Leadership without compassion breeds abuse. And I'm going to give some commentary to you now and tell you that that is happening in the church. We do have people who stand in a place of authority and they lead without compassion. And they hurt many as a result. So we have to be careful about lording over. Jesus said, I don't want you to do that. I want you to be a shepherd. I want you to lead. I want you to be compassionate leaders. The second thing that Jesus profiled in secular leadership, again, back to Mark 1042, he says, their great ones exercise authority upon them. Great ones. In the original language, that word is megas. Does that sound familiar to you? That's where we get the word mega from. Big. Okay, it's a very wide application. High, large, loud, mighty. There's some leaders like that, high, large, loud, and mighty. And that has really become a goal and objective in many people who uh, don't really understand true servant leadership. They want to be mega leaders. They want to be mega pastors. They want to be large. They want to be mighty. If people will set them on the pedestal, they'll take the opportunity. So, This leadership style involves using authority, using your position to make things happen. Authority becomes your vehicle of power rather than influence and credibility. Think about that. That's a secular style of leadership, using your authority to make things happen. Using your authority to become that vehicle of power to make things happen. Now, hear what I'm saying, and this is in your notes. 
authority becomes your vehicle of power rather than influence and credibility. We'll talk about this at another time, but I really believe that the true uh, basis for leadership is credibility. Now, I know that John Maxwell says that leadership can be summarized in one word. He said influence. Leadership summarized in one word is influence. But I believe that there's something more core to leadership than influence. It's called credibility. A wise man once said, he who thinks he leads and no one follows is only taking a walk. He who thinks he leads and no one follows is only taking a walk. Credibility is the currency for leadership. But when a man does not have credibility and he treats people as a disposable commodity and he has not endeared himself to the congregation, he has to change his leadership style. He doesn't have credibility, and because he doesn't have credibility, he doesn't have influence, and so he has to use his position to make things happen. And people have to do things simply because of his name tag on the door. I've got news for you today. If you have to constantly remind people that you're the pastor, and if you have to constantly remind people that you're in charge, here's a little 411. You're not in charge. So influence and credibility Becoming the means for leadership is the way that God wants us to truly lead. He does not want us to use our title and our authority as the vehicle to make everything happen. Remember that Jesus' source of authority and power was not found in position. It was found in a towel and a wash basin. He showed us what servant leadership is really all about. James and John thought that if they could get the positions they were after, they could exercise authority over them. They wanted to be mega disciples, but they were wrong. And Jesus was very clear about the fact that he was rejecting that secular leadership. Mark 10:43 in our text, but so shall it not be among you. We need to take that message to heart. We need to make a high-level commitment that we will reject the Roman style of leadership. And sometimes we're tempted. Sometimes it would be easier. But if you want God's blessing and sanction on your ministry and ultimately on the church that you pastor, that you lead, then you have to acknowledge that he uh, forbids us from using that style of leadership. Remember, too, that without Christ, we're going to have a fallen view of leadership. Without Jesus, we're just not going to see it the way we need to see it. If we're not intentional about our personal sanctuary and having uh, the, God's voice and spirit uh, dealing with us and speaking to us on a consistent basis, we're going to have to start to listen to other voices when it comes to leadership. Now, I'm a reader, and I love to read uh, business books. I love to read uh, from leaders who are not necessarily uh, in the arena of, of the church and ministry. But I've got to tell you, you have to spit out the bones. But ultimately, my view of leadership and my direction for leadership comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I don't have a relationship with him, and the only time I pray 
is for God to bless the sermon I'm about to preach. And the only time I pray is at hospital calls. The only time I pray is at altar calls when I'm praying for someone else. Ultimately, I will fall to a a view of leadership that is not worthy of the kingdom of God. So let's talk about Christ's view of leadership. Again, back to our text in Matthew chapter 23, verses 11 through 12. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's just powerful. He that is greatest among you shall be your servant. That is countercultural, and that is a revolutionary view of leadership. He goes on to say, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. I love Bill Hybel's uh, statement about leadership. He says, if you truly want to be great, then the direction you must go is down. You must descend into greatness. I agree with that. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11. Luke chapter 14, reading verses 7 through 11. And I'm going to set this verse up for you. Jesus' disciples are standing uh, probably in a courtyard. They're in an island of outcasts. In a, in a sea of middle to upper class people A Pharisee has invited Jesus over to meet some of his religious friends And, uh, you know, remember this for Pharisees Having the newest popular evangelist over at your house Was, was almost like a sport for them, for Pharisees and, and a banquet had been set And Jesus talks with the host and some of, the, uh, uh, some of his friends And then someone announces that the meal is ready now, they're standing in the courtyard, and the meal has been announced. And all of a sudden, it's a foot race. And these Pharisees, these religious leaders, make their way to the, the seats that are available. And Jesus and the disciples observe that these men are pushing their way to the head table. And so... Jesus looks at this whole thing and sees these men, these ambitious men, pushing for the head table. And he uses that as a teaching moment, and he turns to his followers. And he says in Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11, And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden, when he marked how they chose out of the chief rooms, saying unto them, when thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room. When he that bade thee come, he may say unto thee, friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. Verse 11, for whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Does that sound familiar? Jesus was teaching something that challenged a common assumption in his day, and it's also a common assumption in our day. You see, 
pushing and shoving to get to the head table was a natural thing then, and it's a natural thing now. It was how young Pharisees got ahead. Who would argue that sitting up front meant that somebody had arrived? So getting to the head table is a natural priority in our world. It's just part of that fallen view of leadership, pushing for the head table. Head tables become the finish line, or shall I say pulpits have become the finish line, or shall I say conferences have become the finish line, or shall I say big churches have become the finish line. Now, I'm not preaching against any of those things. We need men there. But we just need to realize that there is a big difference between a spirit of obedience and a spirit of ambition. God does not want his, his representatives, his ambassadors in this world, to have an ambitious spirit. So <clears throat> Jesus saw something there that our culture tends to overlook, and he spoke to it, and he warned his disciples that as long as leaders worry about who sits at the head table, they have little time for the people they're called to serve. We don't see opportunities of service while our eyes are fixed on the competition. We have to be careful about having a competitive spirit. We need to be careful about having a competition mentality in the ministry because at the end of the day, sirs, remember this, we are not competing with one another. We are completing one another. And if we're going to stand with Christ, we have to forget about sitting Who's sitting at the right hand and at the left hand? We have to forget about personal prestige. And we need to start focusing on self-denial, taking up a cross, and following Jesus' lead. Focus your passion on being a follower of Christ. Focus your passion on serving his mission and picking up your personal cross turning away from personal agendas, turning away from that spirit of ambition and saying, God, I'm going to be a servant leader. The world wants to be close to the head table because that's what is closest to power. But the power we need in order to serve our generation is near a cross. It's a cross of self-denial. Remember that Jesus is always careful to give more honor to discipleship than position. He's always going to honor the obedient over the ambitious. There's true greatness in servant leadership. Now let's talk about that. Servant leaders give up personal rights to find greatness and service to others. That's where greatness comes from. Servant leaders gave up their personal rights, and I think there's a lot of wisdom involved in giving up your personal rights. You see, if you give up your personal rights, then you don't have any rights to be trampled. When you give up your personal rights, there's a whole lot less opportunity for you to be offended in the work that is postured towards eternity. When we give up our personal rights, we will find greatness and service to others. And that's what Jesus said in Mark 10:43. But so shall it not be among you. 
but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. We have to give up our rights. We're waiters. That's what we are. That's what the word means in the original language. Minister. It means to be an attendant, to wait upon. And so in our modern application, when we say waiter, uh, that's something that we think about in a restaurant environment. And a great waiter never lets your Diet Coke run out. Or for some of you guys, your sweet tea. Never let your sweet tea run out. They're anticipating your needs. And they have a service mindset. In verse 44, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. That's so powerful to me. We've got to understand where we fall in leader in the leadership model according to the servant mindset. I believe if you look at the tr- traditional corporate leadership model, it's a top-down organization. Imagine the triangle. You've all seen that model. On the very top is the CEO. And then you go one level down and you have your executives. And then you go one level down and you have your upper management. You go one level down and you have your middle management. And then when we get all the way down to the bottom, we have people that are in charge of maintaining the facility as janitors, maintenance people. But in Jesus' leadership style, he says it's, it's just the opposite. Think about the base of the triangle. In a servant leadership model, at the base of the triangle is the leader. At the base of the model is the pastor. And what does the pastor do? The pastor provides stability. The pastor provides the support to the people that he serves directly. It's not the it's not the a top down organization. A church is not a top down organization. And we need to view ourselves in our proper place in leadership. We're not on the top. According to the scripture, the cheapest is the servant, which means that we are at the very bottom. And we provide as pastors the support and the stability to the church through service. Think about that. Verse 45 gives us the compelling reason for us to be servants of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. I know I'm just preaching to the choir when I tell you that that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. God manifested in flesh. Creator, King, subjects himself to the cruelty of his own creation so that he can redeem us back to himself. Jesus was not asking his disciples something to do that he wasn't already doing. Dwight L. Moody once said, the measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many men he serves. What a great and powerful insight. Now remember this, friends. Remember that the true test of a servant is if I act like one when I'm treated like one. We can talk about servant leadership, but at the end of the day, we don't know if we really have a servant leadership mindset until we're treated like a servant. I have a very good friend of mine. He is the uh, district superintendent 
of the state of Florida, Brother Pat Williams, an incredible man of God and a tremendous servant leader. He was relaying a story to me one day. I was uh, down there. We're spending some time together. And uh, he he was telling me the story because it was humorous to him, but I, I got more out of it than just humor. Um, this was many, many years ago. He's been district superintendent for at least uh, 15 years. And uh, he was telling me that when he first became district superintendent, he was at the campgrounds helping to get the church, the district campgrounds in order, had his work clothes on and uh, was working on the grounds. And a, a lady pulled onto the campgrounds with a, a, a very large and expensive RV and pulled into one of the camping spots. And it just so happened that Brother Pat Williams, the district superintendent, was walking by as she got out of her RV. And she looked at him and assessed his place and his status in life as being the camp caretaker. And she said, I have some things that need to be taken care of over here. And she began to put him to work. And as I remember the story, she had several tasks for him, kept him busy for quite some time, and he never said a word. He just went about taking care of everything that he needed to do, and he got the biggest kick out of that. You know, I'm sure that this lady had quite a surprise when at that camp meeting service, Brother Pat Williams was introduced as the new district superintendent of the district. He thought that was hilarious. But you know what I got out of that? I got out of that 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 man is a servant leader. When he was treated like a servant, he acted like a servant. He had given up his rights, and he kept a good spirit even when he was in an awkward situation. Now, the Jews at this time, remember what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, I want you to be servants of all. Think about this. At this point in time, the Jews were tired of being used and abused, and actually they refused to be a slave to anyone. That's what the Exodus was all about. Slaves were bought and sold as property. And so Jesus was telling them to do something that really went against their grain. It was truly countercultural in their mindset. But not much has changed. It's countercultural in our mindset as well. And we need to bring our lives into full obedience to the commandment of God to be servant leaderships to our generation. That's where greatness comes from. First Corinthians 6.20 tells us, For ye are bought with a price. And for that reason, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, here comes, which are God's. You know what that means? That means that at the end of the day, we don't have rights because we don't belong to ourselves. We don't have ownership of self. We belong to God. And he told, told us to give up our rights. We need to resign as the general manager of the universe and let God be God and find joy and service to others. And greatness and service to others can never occur as long as you insist that it's your right that others serve you. Richard Foster made a powerful observation. He said, when we choose to be a servant, we give up the right to be in charge. There is great freedom in this. If we voluntarily choose to be taken advantage of, then we cannot be manipulated. Boy, that's quite a statement. When we choose to be a servant, 
we surrender the right to decide who and when we will serve. We become available and vulnerable. We live in a culture where the individual has been moved to the center of the universe. And when this takes place, the rights of the individual reigns over the needs of others. That's called the I syndrome. I want it now. I deserve it. I'm entitled. After all I've done, I can't believe I haven't received more appreciation. You better be careful for that attitude. That's not a servant leadership mentality. Why do you do what you do? Do you do what you do for appreciation? Do you do what you do so that at the end of the day, people will say nice things about you? Do what you do for God so that when and if you don't receive proper acknowledgement or appreciation, you're not robbed of the blessing of that service. When you do what you do for God, no one can rob you of the blessing of your service. Until our rights are relinquished, service is less, less likely to happen. The only service that's going to happen in the secular mindset is self-service. That's not what God wants. Moving on in your outline, what assurances do we have that being a servant works? Brother Soto, this is uh, it, it's a vulnerable situation that you're calling me to. It feels like thin ice. You're you're telling me that, that I'm at the bottom of, of, of God's church model, that, that the greatest among you shall be your servants. How do I know this is going to work? Well, first of all, remember that Jesus did it. Our text tells us, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Tell me, was he successful? Tell me, did his life have an impact on the world? Tell me, does his life still impact lives today? I would tell you that Jesus is the greatest success story in human history. And his life, his singular life, has had a greater impact on the world than any life before or after. It was a successful work that he, he did with a servant leadership mentality. My friend, it will work. And you will be most effective and your life, you will reach your horizons, and you will accomplish what God wants you to do with this model. And I promise you this, if you refuse the servant leadership model, you will never be what you could have been. You will never be what you could be, and you will never achieve what God intended for you to achieve. That secular mindset of leadership and that ambitious spirit will frustrate God's purpose in your life and sabotage your opportunities to be what he's called you to be. So remember that Jesus did it, and he is our great model. Secondly, Jesus is going to reward it. In Revelation chapter 22, we read in verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. We're seeing through the lens God is pulling back the curtain, and through the lens of prophecy, we're seeing the end, the final reward, this place, this holy city called New Jerusalem, this place of reward for God's people. And look at the framework. The Bible says there should be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And here's the framework. Here are the people that will be there, and his servants shall serve him. What am I going to be in heaven? I'm still going to be a servant of God. 
And if I can't be a servant here, then I promise you, you'll never make it there. But if you'll be a servant here, don't ever forget Revelation chapter 22. That in that holy city, that's where servants go. Into the very presence of God. What an awesome thing. I want you to know it works, and on a personal level, it will be a blessing to your life. I'm so thankful that I came to understand and know uh, the Word of God and how the Lord wants us to lead. And I'm going to be very sincere with you today and tell you I'm not a finished product. I'm in process, just like all of us. We're all in process, and God is challenging me daily to lay aside the filthiness of my flesh and spirit and to perfect holiness and the fear of God. But that leadership model of, of, of being a servant has been a blessing to me. Uh, I'm going to share a, a personal story with you, and I don't say this to uh, for self-grandizement. I just want you to know that, that it works and that sometimes by being a servant, you're backing into God's will. You're not marching into it, uh, but you're backing into it, and, and the Lord blesses. Uh, I had the privilege back in the late 90s to serve as uh, the youth secretary for the Iowa district. And then uh, I moved to the Wisconsin district and pastored there. And when I moved and transitioned over there, uh, I was still very much, I had a, a high-level calling to minister to young people, and I still do. It's part of my life calling to be a blessing to young people. But I remember very clearly uh, uh, having a desire to, to help I knew what youth ministry was about on a district level, and I wanted to be available and a blessing. I wasn't asking for a position. I just wanted to be a help. I knew that there was always a lot of work to be done, and I remember the youth president coming over to me at that time, Brother Frank Zenobia, and, and he was very kind, and he said, you know, uh, all of our positions are filled, and, and uh, our, our team is, is relatively young, and, and so I don't have anything to offer you, but but I, I know you were on the team, and he just sort of gave me an invitation to say, if you, if you ever want to help, we'll be happy. Well, I took advantage of that. And I remember that uh, every uh, camp, youth camp that there was, I went over and I would help in any way that I could. And one, one year in particular, I remember Brother Zenobia, um, uh, approaching Brother Zenobia, and I went to him and I said, look, it's senior camp time. I'm here. I want to help. How can I help you? And he said, I hate to, to ask you this, but... He said, we don't have anybody to do sanitation this year. And he said, I almost feel bad about sharing that with you, but that's the only area where we need help this year. And I, I was quick to tell him, Frank, I would love to do that for you. Don't consider it done. It's going to be taken care of. And that week, it was my role and my responsibility to take care of sanitation, take care of those bathrooms, wash those toilets, do whatever I needed to do. And I put a little team together, and, and we got the job done, and it was our joy to participate. But a couple of years later, when, when it was time for a Brother Zenobia, he had aged out. For whatever reason, the district began to look my way. I wasn't on the team. I, I had never been on the Wisconsin district team. I was not uh, a sectional representative. And at that business meeting, um, when they had elections, amazingly, I was voted on a nominating ballot to be the youth president of the state of Wisconsin. You know what's incredible? Several of the team members came to me afterwards and said, one of the compelling reasons that we felt that we wanted you to be our youth president was we heard a story about you at a senior camp. 
And that's the kind of person that we want to lead our young people. I'm here to tell you today that servant leadership works. When I stepped on as youth president, I knew that there might be some uh, some men who, uh, you know, maybe had some hopes of being the youth president. And now here's a guy who's never been on the Wisconsin District Youth Ministry team, and he's the president. And you know what the first lesson was that I taught them? It was this very lesson. That was back in 2004. And this lesson and this philosophy has served me well. God has been good. And I know I want to speak to our young pastors who are here today and tell you, I recognize that one of the most important things to you is for someone to acknowledge God's purpose and his plan for your life. And I know there's a need in all of us to be affirmed, but we need to resist that ambitious spirit. And we have to be careful how we use authority. Now, we're only going to get halfway through this lesson today. Next time that we get together, we're going to finish this lesson. We're going to transition to authority. We're going to talk about it, what authority is, what it isn't, the proper uses of authority. But if you will take this servant leadership mentality and apply it, and I haven't even really had the opportunity but to scratch the surface and just give you a few definitions and ideas to help you to, to, to bring this into your personal life and to apply this to your ministry. But if you will develop this and if you will make this a part of how you do business in your life, you won't be able to say anything but this, I'm blessed. Wherever you're at, wherever you find yourself, whether you're on the mountaintop or in the valley, in times of abundance or leanness, a servant leader will find joy and service to others, whatever the situation. So, Lord Jesus, I come before you today, and I thank you for this opportunity to speak to my brothers. Thank you, God, for the work that they're doing. You see their individual lives and their investments. You see what's challenging them, frustrating them. You see some of the harsh realities that they're dealing with. And I just pray, God, your blessing upon them, strength, understanding, in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us not to forget this lesson today. We are making a commitment, Lord. We're laying our shields at your feet. We are warriors, but we lay our shields at your feet. We are not kings. We are servants. And God, today, we're making a commitment to you that we're giving up our rights, and we're going to find joy and service to others. In Jesus' name, amen.